I'm excited about where we're going tonight. Now, I've been digging around in these things. In fact, you'll, you, you'll be familiar with some of this, I think. <laughs> but I, I had the Holy Spirit about 18 months ago, maybe a little more, open something up to me that I had never actually seen in this light before. And it really came through one of the... One of the big names of the Bible. You know, there are big names in the Bible. I mean, some real big names. And I mean, big names like Moses. It's a big name. Oh, why did I bring that up? <laughs> Praise God. And uh, big names like Abraham. And, and, uh, but one of the biggest names in Scripture, particularly in the Old Testament, maybe the biggest name in the Old Testament is King David. And the Holy Spirit opened something up to me sometime back now that I haven't, he hasn't allowed me to let go of. And anywhere I go, he often, well, almost always is having me back into that. So here's what I want you to do. This is going to surprise you maybe, but we're going to start this that God began to show me. And it's going to be relevant to you. It's not just about David, it's about us. But I want, to, I want you to go to the book of Revelation, the very last book of the Bible. You knew that. And I want to read one particular statement that Jesus makes to us from the third chapter. Now he's writing this to one of the seven leaders in seven different cities in Asia Minor, modern day Turkey actually. And in verse 7 he says this, he says, but to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, or let me just say this, uh, instead of angel, let's, let's use one difference in, in looking at this, because that word is also translated in a few places about a person. It's really about a messenger, and I'm fully convinced that what Jesus is really doing is talking to the leadership in a church that is in a city. And that's what makes the most sense to me. Right. Now, you don't have to agree, of course. I mean, everybody has the right to be wrong. So, uh, the... Uh, all right, we're, we're starting off kind of rough, but we'll, it'll get better. Uh, so, he says to the angel or the messenger of the church in Philadelphia, right? These things, says he who is holy... He who is true, glory to God. Uh, and he who has the key of David. He who opens and no one shuts, he shuts and no one opens. I know your works. See, I have set before you an open door. And no one, say no one. No and no one can shut it. For you have a little strength. You've kept my word, and you have not denied my name. Now, he said more to this leader and to this church, but I want to focus only on those few words and really just on one concept primarily tonight. But notice this, he is saying something to that church that I think he's saying to this church. In fact, I think he's saying to the body of Christ right now in this time. And that is that he has opened some things to us. There are things open to us that nobody can shut. There are things open to you 
that no one can shut. God has opened a door to you that you can't even shut. Glory to God. But now here's the thing about any door that's open, anything that God presents, even if it's open, you still got to step through the door. So things aren't going to happen necessarily automatically in every instance. We have to step into a relationship, a place in God, a, a type of believing or a position to receive. But the door is open. The door of blessing is open. The door of abundance is open. The door of health and healing and restoration on every level. All of these things are open. And he just summarizes it by saying, I've opened to you a door that nobody can shut. And when the door flings open to us, the implication is, I want you to step in through this door. Glory to God. That's simple thinking. But it's important to remind yourself that God has opened something to you you cannot wreck. <laughs> I don't know, for guys like me, that's good information because I seem to have been good at times at wrecking things. <laughs> I suddenly feel so lonely. <laughs> yeah. But here's the thing I really want to focus on primarily. He said of himself, the one who is holy, the one who is true, and there it is, the one who has the key of David. I saw that statement, the key of David, one day. I said, what in the world is that? The key of David. I, I really didn't know. I'd read that before. It never stood out to me before. You just kind of pass some things by. Maybe you don't, but I have. Boy, this, what is this, true confessions? I mean, goodness gracious. It just blow by some things, and this one was one I had many times. And there it is, though, the key of David. This particular day, about a year and a half ago or more, I said, what is that? And I began to do some research. I began to look. I found there's really no place else in Scripture that refers to the key of David. There is a reference in Isaiah about the key of the house of David. The reference really is dealing with something slightly different. But the point is important. There is something inside of King David's relationship with Jesus something that David discovered, something that he found he could stand in that was pivotal in history. And it was key. Really, when you dig into it like we're going to dig into it tonight, you find it is the key to everything. Goodness gracious. You know what a key's all about. A key's all about uh, locking and unlocking stuff. You know, that's what, that's what you do with keys. You lock it, you unlock it. That's it. That's all you do with a key. You unlock it, you lock it. It's what make things, makes things work. Yes. It's about authority. Authority is about position. There are keys to be unlocked that create a position and a place in Christ, in God, that you and me have the opportunity to step into if we'll take it. 
So I want you to listen closely to this. Think about King David for just a moment. Uh, I started to just ponder on a lot of this when I started into this, this, uh, this journey God started to take me through. And I realized that, you know, no place in the New Testament is Jesus called the son of Abraham. Although technically and theologically that would have been correct. He was uh, of the seed of Abraham as every Jew is. The seed of Abraham. He could have been called the son of Abraham. That, that lady that he healed that day, he called, he himself called, the daughter of Abraham. Any of them would have qualified as the son or children of Abraham in the way, in the way this custom and society functioned. Man, that was the deal. It was all about what went back to Abraham. And yet, that isn't really the way Jesus is referred to at all. He is called 17 times, however, the son of David. Although it was a distinction now, something was set apart, something was different, huge. He was born in what city? The city of David, Bethlehem. And so there is, there is something powerful that I really had passed by to the degree that this has come alive for me now. And I began to look into David's life, and there's all kinds. I mean, dozens and dozens of great moments, great history. You know, he uh, had the anointing come on him when Samuel the prophet came. His daddy didn't even think he would be a candidate to be anointed as king. Daddy didn't even bring David out to show the prophet when the prophet came to anoint one of the sons of Jesse as king. It never occurred to his dad that David might be an option. That's amazing. So, you know, there, there's some sort of dysfunction going on. He wasn't necessarily raised in the most ideal situation, if you look at it through those eyes. So he didn't have everything going for him just right. You know, so many times we think and look at people that, uh, you know, guys like this, or even, even current situation, you look at certain people, that God's using in certain ways, you say, man, they, they've never, they would never understand the troubles that I've seen. They would never get it. And so often we have a tendency to kind of dismiss or maybe excuse ourselves and dismiss what another person might be able to minister to us because they just don't understand my situation. They've always had it so good. And people could have thought that about David at certain times in his life. He had it so good. And yet you look at his history and, you know, he didn't have it as good as a lot of people thought. Well, that's really not the story. And there's, there's other events. We could talk about <clears throat> when he slew Goliath. Gosh, what a great story. And what a great time, man. David did some magnificent things. He had some of the brightest moments in all of history. But, you know, he also had some dark times. And while none of us really enjoy the dark times of our lives, we seem to enjoy better the dark times of other people's lives. <laughs> now, that may not be true for you here, but in America, it's a severe problem. It's, it's very serious. No, human, we, we love misery as long as it's other people's. And David had his times, King David. 
had some of the darkest times and some of the most sordid events that he got himself wrapped up in. You know, not everything that happens in our life is because Satan has caused it. No doubt he plans for it. No doubt he wants it. No doubt he encourages it. No doubt he sets things in place so that certain things can happen. But you know, a lot of times, a lot of times, we jump into troubles all by ourselves. He nearly has to be informed <laughs> so he can take some credit in one way or another of the trouble that we have caused ourselves. David got himself in serious trouble. And you know the story. I won't go through all the details, but there's a few things that might help because I want you to catch the picture of how dark this time got for David so you understand what I'm about to talk to you about and the, and, and the real strength of it. And you, you do remember the story if you've read it or heard about it. There was a certain season, a time when the soldiers in the kingdom were out doing kingdom business and David really needed to have been out with them, leading them. But he wasn't. He stayed in the city and when he did, he got out on his balcony apparently and as he did one particular day or evening, he looked across the way and there was a beautiful young lady bathing on her balcony. Now look. I've got questions about women that are going to bathe out on the balcony. I mean, I, the Bible doesn't say anything one way or the other, but I do have the right to speculate just for a moment. And a woman bathing on the balcony, knowing she's in reasonable distance from where David might be out, I don't know. We could speculate, and if we wanted to, we could turn tonight into a very sorted imagination of what was on her mind. Doesn't really matter what was on her mind because it was what was on David's mind that really caused the most problems. His eyes fell upon her. He wanted her and brought her, had her brought to him. And the result of this, you know, turned into the conception of a child. He committed adultery with Bathsheba, a married young lady whose husband was out at battle. And once this conception became known to David, David plotted a plot to try to fix it. Damage control is always important. It just rarely turns out the way people wished it would. This wasn't going to turn out very well either. But David didn't know that yet. He wanted damage control, and the best thing to do is bring that soldier in, have him spend some time with his beloved wife. So this conception can seem to be legitimate. Well, this honorable soldier, God bless him, got him killed. But this honorable soldier, he wouldn't even go in his house, not when his comrades were out risking their lives tonight. He said, I won't even walk through the door. David had him, had him get drunk, thought that might help. He just passed out on the porch. He would not go in. David's plan had failed. He came up with plan B, an even worse plan. But damage control does things to your brain. It damages your brain. So out of brain damage, King David had another plan, and that was to send this soldier back out on the front lines with orders in his hand, sealed so he couldn't read it, but he handed the orders for his own death. 
to the commander of the armies who was instructed to put him forward, put this young man holding this document forward, and then draw the other troops back so that this soldier will die in battle. This is as ugly as it gets. And this is our hero, <laughs> King David. This is as ugly and nasty as it gets. David thinks the damage control is working. But part of the brain damage that David was going through was that he knows God. And he knows that God has seen every bit of what's been going on. And these things don't pass God by. So one day Nathan, the prophet of God, comes to visit King David, and King David invites him in. Now, just a little point of of uh, opinion and maybe a point of recommendation. If a prophet comes knocking at your door and you're in sin, don't open the door <laughs> until you get on your knees, clean this thing up with God, Jesus, 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 oh Jesus, 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 then Open the door and welcome the prophet of God into your house. <laughs> but David was not aware of this, and so he invited the prophet Nathan into his house. And you know the story. Nathan painted quite a rosy picture or kind of a, actually another dark picture. But it was a picture of somebody in the kingdom who was just a little servant that worked in the house of the wealthy people, who had many flocks and herds. And this one family, this servant family, had only one little lamb, kind of a pet. But when this wealthy family was having guests come, they wanted to feed this guest and their family a wonderful meal, but they did not want to take any of their own herd to do it. So they took this one lamb from this poor servant in the house and they served that lamb to their guests. And David heard this sorry story from Nathan and he went ballistic. He really did. He got angry. He said, somebody's head will roll. This cannot be, this cannot be allowed. And then Nathan uttered those words that we all know well. David, you are that man. So all the blood rushes out of David's head, of course, because he knows where this goes. He knows that according to the law of Moses and according to the things written in Scripture, which their society was built around, while there was sacrifices and offerings for sin that people would bring to the temple and there was offerings and sacrifice to cover sins, there were two sins for which there were no offerings nor sacrifice and David had found both of them. <laughs> Adultery and murder. All that was left for David was that the the leaders of the city and the leaders of Israel were to take this violator outside of the camp or the city and stone him until he was dead. That was it. And David knew it. He cried out to God, man, I would too. 
<laughs> oh, God. He did. He began to cry out to him. He wrote Psalm 51, one of the great psalms, all of them are, but one of the great psalms of the Bible. Psalm 51 is David pouring his heart out to God. He didn't pray this in just a moment's time. This would have taken hours, maybe days. But he prayed and cried out to God. And in this prayer, you find that he sees something. And this is where the key begins to become clear to David. This is amazing. So turn to Psalm 51. Would you do that? Oh, I've jumped way ahead. I, I'm, I'm completely off of all of my notes. But since we're still in the Bible, I think it's okay. <laughs> psalm 51. This psalm of David was written just after Nathan. In fact, uh, uh, my Bible has that note right at the beginning. Yours might also. Psalm of David when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. Now, we won't read every bit of this psalm, but I want to highlight a few things. You could read all of it. It's amazing. But he begins on the right note. He said, Have mercy on me, O God. According to your loving kindness and according to the multitude of your tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me. Listen to what he's asking for. Now, you see, to us, this is kind of familiar stuff, but with what he had done, this wasn't even available. But he went ahead and asked for it anyway. He said, cleanse me of my sin. Wash me thoroughly. He said, I acknowledge my transgression. Look, he's playing no games with God here. He said, my sin is always before me. And against you and you only have I sinned. And done this evil in your sight, that you may be found just when you speak and blameless when you judge. Drop down to verse 6. Behold, you desire truth in the inward parts, and in the hidden part you will make me to know wisdom. David has already locked on to a future. He's already embraced something in God that says, there is hope for me to have a future here. Because you desire something on the inside. And this is where something began to churn in David. Something that we are familiar with, but people of this day would not have been. You have to understand, there was huge differences between the way people in this time would have been able to worship God and the way we worship God today. Huge differences. Not only was it a lot of liturgy and pomp and ceremony and form. It was also all external in the sense that the spirit of a man had never been born out of sin, ever. It had never happened in all of mankind's history at this stage. Nobody had ever been born out of sin. Nobody had been made free from sin. They had their sin atoned for, covered. And God was able to participate and be involved with people, but they were still dark on the inside. They wouldn't have even known it because nobody had ever tasted anything different. But here David 
is saying something that is amazing. He said, you desire truth in my inward parts, in the hidden part. What, what's he talking about? In the spirit. What we now know is that inside spirit of a person that is where we are born again. David's, David's understanding something here. He's already spent so much time and, and come to know God in such a deep way, deeper than any other leader ever had, that he knew that God wanted, wanted something more for him than to destroy him because of his own failings. Oh, he knew he had failed. Boy, he knew he was in trouble. He knew he had messed up. He was not hiding that. He was acknowledging all that. But what he knew was that God was a God different from what was being talked about. He believed something about God that the rabbis weren't teaching. He believed something about God that the law did not seem to describe. Now, we look at all this and we say, yeah, 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 oh, I get that, I get that. Nobody got this. And sadly, many people still don't. All right, you're getting it. Now, watch this. Verse 7, purge me with hyssop and I'll be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me hear joy and gladness. Glory to God. Oh, that the bones you've broken may rejoice. Hide your face from my sins. And here it is. Blot out my transgressions. Blot out. Create in me a clean heart. Oh, God, and renew a steadfast spirit in me. Oh, David's, David's seeing that there is the possibility for life beyond what he has done to condemn himself to death. Drop down to verse 16, just for time's sake, because we've got a ways to go tonight. Drop down to verse 16, because this is what got my attention. Now, this may surprise you, but this got my attention. You do not desire sacrifice, or else I would give it. You do not delight in burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit and a broken and contrite heart. These, O oh God, you will not despise. Now, I read verse 16. I pitched my Bible up on the desk. I said, wait a minute, David. Who do you think you are? You said, God, you don't desire the very thing you created the very system you designed. God's the one that designed all of these sacrifices and offerings that they'd been living with. God was the one that wrote all of that, told these guys what to write. He's the one that told Moses. Remember the Ten Commandments, you know, and all that? How many saw the movie? Did you see the movie? (laughs) And yet now David suddenly says, no, what you designed, you don't like. I'm saying, David, where do you get this? What makes you think? And yet, what we know now, 
David was exactly right. David, David saw into something. He literally saw into forgiveness, into the heartbeat of God that would come through Jesus hundreds of years in his future. He literally saw something outside of the limits of the age that he lived in. Now, fasten your seatbelt because I don't know how else to say this. He, he saw something outside of the limits of time and saw something that was eternal. He saw the delivering power of God that was in Jesus, though Jesus wasn't born yet. You know, this gets a little sci-fi for some, but uh, eternity is just one of those things. Your brain really doesn't get it. You know, our brain just doesn't quite get forever. God has always been. <laughs> yeah, but he had to start somewhere. And yet he's always been, and he always will be. Forever. It, our brain, uh, in our heart we get it, but in our head, you really don't. We like to think we do. It's like infinity. There's several things like this. It's like, well, surely there, there's an end somewhere. But no, there could be half of that, you know. And, uh, and then it continues. Okay, anyway, somebody went, what? Uh, doesn't matter. So, but the point is that David, like all of us, lived in this external realm so I mean, I'm all the time, man. We're just always in the external. It's always. Everything is in how it feels or how it looks or how it tastes or what's going on in a natural manner. And yet, David's now seen something outside of that. And he saw that the very thing God designed in sacrifices and offerings just to cover sin, God didn't even like that. That what God really was all about is delivering someone from sin, not destroying them because of their sin. He was, he was committed to their deliverance, not their destruction. He had a heart that wanted people totally free, clean on the inside. And David, in reaching into eternity, literally grabbed hold of what would come in Christ. And yet what had been true from the foundation of the world, that the lamb would be slain, David reached into that and pulled that forgiveness into his time. There are things that are eternal and true that we can pull into our own life right now, inside of the age we're in. There are ageless things. These things are true in God. These things are tangible in the Spirit. They have been verified and ratified in Christ. And now every person has the right to reach into something eternal that they find in God, in Christ Jesus, and bring that into their present time. Whatever that may be, whatever the need might be. In this case, David needed, ooh, he needed help bad and fast. So he prays this prayer. 
cries out to God. And what happens? This is amazing. <laughs> they don't kill him. He, he lives through this. The elders of Israel apparently weren't even informed. Had they been, you know, some of them would have come knocking at the door. No, apparently they weren't even informed. God would have had to tell Nathan that this is a settled issue now. Leave it alone. And from that point forward, here's what you find in David's writing when he refers to himself, he is the righteous. Are you kidding me? After what you did? See, here's the thing in God. God doesn't bring those things up again. Didn't bring it up to David. Doesn't bring it up to you and me. Those things that are under the forgiveness and washed in the blood of Jesus Christ's sacrifice, those things God is not bringing back up to us. No. That's why we have family. No, that's not really why we have family, but there's some families that think that's their job. They're the scribes or Pharisees of the house. No, God doesn't bring it back up. Didn't bring it back up to David either. No, when he referred back to David's past, that event was never part of it. He referred back to him being a shepherd and a sheepfold and tending to the sheep. And he said often, various times, I brought you out of that. But he never brings this up. Mm -mm. This was over. What had David done? He had literally reached into what we now know is God's grace and his mercy. And he received for himself complete and full Forgiveness. Glory to God. Oh, dear God. I have made myself so happy. But there was another event. Can you take another one? I feel like I just got started. Some of you don't look like I just got started, but I really don't care. That was so cold. But... Um, because there was a second event. Now, I was going to save this for later, but I just can't wait. <laughs> so I got to get this to you now. Because there was a second event in David where he saw this key. Now, he walked in this key of forgiveness in Christ, even though he wouldn't have known to call it in Christ. But he had found in God what God wanted for people for all of history. And he received it in the now and he began to walk from that point in greater and greater callings and anointings. Did greater and greater things. It was amazing some of the things that he ended up doing. And many years passed. And there was another moment when Nathan the prophet would come to David once again. And there certainly were other times, but this one was so significant, maybe the most significant. In fact, I believe what we're about to look at is the pivotal point of history prior to Jesus that unveiled the plan that God had and how David had been a part of it and why he is such a key for all of us. So I want you to see this in First Chronicles 17. 
going to give you a little extra time to find Chronicles. And this is why we have a table of contents. <clears throat> First Chronicles 17. David had done so many amazing things. And in fact, at one stage... And even, even at the time frame of what we're about to read, David was quite, quite bent in his mind on building a house for God. Ooh, he wanted God to have the best. Isn't that how we all feel? We want God to, to have the best. Yes. He deserves it. Yes. And David wanted that. He had been in and seen some of the demon temples and things built to these other demon gods and realized that his God lived in a tent. He didn't like it. He said, I'm going to build God a house. And it would have been magnificent. Oh, he was going to build this amazing structure so that God would know how much he was appreciated by David and that everyone else would know what a great God the Most High God is. Well, that's what David had on his mind. But God came to David through Nathan the prophet and had some clarifications for him. I'm going to read several verses here, so just hang with it. In verse 4, it says, Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, you shall not build me a house to dwell in. All right, well, there goes that idea. You ever tried to do something for God that later you found out God was really not even interested in? This had nothing to do with something God wanted? I mean, no, noble ideas, but Anyway, that's what David had done. So God says, uh, You shall not build me a house to dwell in. For I have not dwelled in a house since the time that I brought up Israel even to this day, but have gone from tent to tent, from one tabernacle to another. Now look, that's not God complaining. That's how some people would say, Look, man, I've wanted, I never had a house. I've only been in a tent. I just go from tent to tent to tent to tent. Just whine, whine, whine. Well, <laughs> Let's call the wambulance. <laughs> but that's not what God's doing. He's not complaining because that's, that's so unimportant to him. Watch what he goes on to say. Whenever I have moved about with all Israel, have I ever spoken a word to any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? And clearly the implication is, I've never even brought it up. This is entirely your idea, David. Verse 7, Now therefore, thus shall you say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the sheepfold, from following the sheep. That always tickles me. He wasn't even leading sheep at that stage. He was actually following. I mean, how low does it get? That's a, that sounds low. To be ruler over my people Israel, and I've been with you wherever you've gone. I've cut off all your enemies from before you. I've made you a name like the name of great men who are on the earth. Moreover, I will appoint a place for my people Israel. I will plant them that they may dwell in a place of their own and move no more. By the way, that word is still in action. Amen. Amen. 
Nor shall the sons of wickedness oppress them any more as previously since the time I commanded the judges uh, to be over my people Israel. Also, I will subdue all your enemies. I like that part. But now watch this next line because this is where it really starts getting big. If you've been fading out, fade back in. He said, furthermore, I tell you that the Lord will build you a house. Ooh, now we're starting to hear something from God nobody's heard ever, anything. I will build you a house. He's not talking about a brick and mortar, cedar, glass kind of house. He's not talking about any of that. You'll see it. Verse 11, And it shall be that when your days are fulfilled, when you must go be with your fathers, that I will set up your seed after you, who will be of your sons, and I will establish his kingdom. Watch verse 12. And he shall build me a house. Hmm. And I will establish his throne. How long? Forever. Oh, we're not talking about Solomon, David's natural son. No, we're talking about Jesus now. All of a sudden, here's the introduction that God has wanted to announce since the Garden of Eden that I am establishing a throne forever. And he's announcing it to David. How complete is this forgiveness? How thorough and complete is God's restoration from the lowest point to a point where God does the greatest thing to establish the throne of Jesus in the earth through this man. And to think that Jesus would come through the lineage of not only David, but Bathsheba. Yes. Holy smoke. Are you kidding me? <laughs> and then in verse 13, he says, he says, I will be his father and he shall be my son. That's quoted in Hebrews chapter 1. God is announcing Jesus to David because David had already embraced this. He understood that there was grace in God, that there was a plan bigger than society had realized, bigger than the rabbis were talking about. There was a plan that God had to so restore mankind that God would be in them and they would be his house. Oh man, that's what God's telling David. When he said, I will build you a house, he's not talking about anything but us. Yes. We are that house. Yes. And he's declaring to David what he will do. Yes. The biggest thing that's ever happened. The biggest thing that could happen. That God would dwell in us in spite of us. <laughs> Glory to God. You get, you get the reality of it. It's hard to be haughty, man. I mean, you know, you really understand what he's talking about. You just cannot really go there, but it's amazing. Anyway, so he said, I will be his father. He shall be my son, and I will not take my mercy away from him as I took it away from him who was before you. Talking about Saul. Verse 14, and I will establish him in my house and in my kingdom forever. 
and his throne shall be forever. Now that was the announcement God made to David. David then had a response to God. Don't you know he had a response? Whoa. After you pick yourself up off the floor, with all of these announcements God's been making, David cries out, verse 16, he says, Then, then King David went in and sat before the Lord, and he said, Who am I, O Lord God? And what is my house that you have brought me this far? Now watch verse 17, because this is why we're reading all of this. And yet it was a small thing in your sight, O God, and you have also spoken of your servant's house for a great while to come. Now watch this line. And have regarded me according to the rank of a man of high degree, O Lord God. I said, wait a minute, David. I don't, do you, do you ever talk to these people? I mean, I just said, what do you, wait a minute. You, you're saying, all right, you're, you're saying to God, oh God, you have regarded me. And I get this. You've regarded me according to the rank of somebody else. Oh, I get that. That's good. But he says, you've regarded me according to the rank of somebody of a higher degree than me. I'm the king. I mean, at first I thought, wait a minute, you, you are the king. You, you do have a high rank. There is no rank above king. But what David saw in this moment was that God was dealing with David according to somebody that is truly important. As if David were somebody else. And God would deal with King David according to that person. Ooh, this started to get big, so I started to dig further. And I went to a commentary, and I don't go to a lot of commentaries, but I did. And I went to this one in particular, Adam Clark's commentary. I found, and, and I think this can be a good thing at times, I found that if you will find smart people, and guys that write commentaries seem smart to me, and then quote those smart people, then vicariously people view you as being smart, which I think can come in handy from time to time. Now that I've told you, you know the program, and so you're not impressed. But anyway, I, I found Adam Clark's commentary, and listen to what he said about that exact statement we just read. He said, <laughs> this cracked me up when I first read it. He said, this is a miserable translation of the Hebrew text. <laughs> I don't know why that would seem funny to me. But uh, <laughs> I'm miserable. Why do we end up with miserable translations? Now, don't get discouraged because there's good things even in miserable translations. But um, he said, that's a miserable translation. When you hear the way, listen to this, because this is not miserable, man. This is big. Watch this. He said this, he said, these words literally signify, in quote, so this is how he would have written this based on the way he's read the Hebrew text. He said, and you, God, have regarded me according to the order of the Adam that is future, or the man that is from above. Ooh, the Adam... That is coming. Praise God. Thank you, Lord. I went to the Hebrew. I don't read Hebrew. 
but I went there anyway. <laughs> there's, there's, you know, Bibles you can look at that have the English right under the Hebrew for guys like me. Interlinear Bible. And there it was, Adam. It's in the text. What, what David saw clearly was there was a new race of people coming. And it would start all over again with another Adam. Only this one would be the Adam from above. He would be the last Adam. There would never need to be another one. Because this one would come from above. David saw it. He saw the new creation. He saw the righteousness that comes by faith. He saw what grace is designed to do, and he saw the empowering that God always intended people to walk in. The same kind of power that the first Adam, the Adam of Genesis, did walk in. You know, the early days had to be good for Adam. I'm still convinced there'll be heavy security in heaven for Adam. I mean, it's possible. There's a number of us that would like some explanation, a little clarity, to say the very least. I know, love of Jesus, love of Jesus, and everything heaven is just a joyful place, but I would like to know what was going on. Anyway. So the Apostle Paul, he picks up on this exact, this exact phrase that we're looking at. 1 Corinthians 15, 45. He picks up on this exact phrase. It's nowhere else. First Corinthians 15, 45. And so it is written, quote, The first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. There it is, the last Adam. However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural. And afterward, the spiritual, the first man was of the earth, made of the dust. The second man is the Lord from heaven. Oh, he saw it. It was right there in David. This is how David responded to what God had said. David saw the plan was, now follow this, was to take things back to an original state, Adam. And yet not with the original weakness and vulnerabilities. The Adam of Genesis failed to walk in God. He didn't really fall into sin. We use that term a lot. You don't really fall into sin. <laughs> you jump in. <laughs> it's very purposeful. <laughs> I know, you, it, there's no humor in that. But, uh, <laughs> but we, we just go ahead and ease it and, and soften it a little bit. They, well, they fell into sin. They, they fell. And that's fine. I mean, I don't care. However, but they're down one way or the other. They're down. And Adam in Genesis, man, he, 
He didn't walk it out right. But the second or last Adam, we have no concerns. There is no vulnerability. There is, nor ever has been, any sin. And now, because we are in Christ, we can't mess it up. Because it's what is, what is His position. And we now are being dealt with according to the order of the last Adam. We have the right to receive, not because we've done everything worthy of receiving, but because we have received the one who is worthy. And he has shared. He has given of himself. And by that, he didn't only give of himself on the cross. He gave us his name. He gave us his spirit. He gave us his DNA. He gave us his position. Do you realize now... All right, we're way off into this now. I mean, we're way in now. Okay, we're about to go in way further. Right. You ready for this? Just take a moment. But You okay? Everybody all right? This is the Friday night crowd, man. Come on. I love this. So, the Bible's crystal clear about this, that Jesus, and he's referred to this way all the time, the man, Christ Jesus, even after the resurrection, that the one seated at the right hand of the throne of God is... The man, Christ Jesus, says that so clearly. Now, here's what we also know. We know that God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit makes up God. Do you know what that means? <laughs> Those two ideas, when you put them together. <laughs> there is a man in the Trinity. A man. Somebody took on flesh and blood and bone in the Trinity now. But here's what he's done. We are, he has given us his position. God brought us in to everything. We're not on the outside of anything. Your sin... Compromise, fear, screwed upness, <laughs> which is not a theological term, actually. You may have already kind of thought that. Does not interfere when we choose to step through what He has opened to us. This is what has been opened that no man can shut. Adam shut down that first system in one sense, if you, if you look at it from that angle. You, there was blessing. Adam shut that down. This has been opened. And nobody can shut it. Satan can't shut it. You can't shut it. I can't shut it. I'm not trying, but some people do. Can't be shut. This is open. 
And all this means is, and I re these are just other angles of looking at this reality, something that's not new to you. But it's, this has been another way to approach this idea that God has so thoroughly dealt with yours and my sin and compromise and condemnation that goes with it. That, that none of that really has a right to us or to hamper us from receiving from God any longer. We learn how to serve God from a position of belonging, not from a position of hoping to attain. This is real important. I'm not performing and doing what I do hoping to attain God's blessing. God's blessing has been commanded. Granted, I have to... How'd the old saying go? You got to get under the spout where the glory comes out? Well, there, you got to... Ooh, that's real old. But... Uh, you have to align your life to receive, yes. I mean, so what's important to recognize here is, is that it is about a mindset. Am I trying to attain or am I aligning my life to receive? Am I endeavoring to become worthy or am I clearly made worthy in Christ and now receiving because of that? And as I receive, it modifies the way I live. Oh, this isn't live like the devil and think you're going to get the blessing of heaven. That just doesn't happen. And you've proved it already. <laughs> so we don't even need to bother really trying to, uh, or needing to discuss it. You've proved it. I've proved it. You cannot live contrary and think all good things are happening in your life. It doesn't work that way. And yet there is something so important to deal with condemnation. I'm convinced that that sense of condemnation over a variety of whatever's been going on in your life is really the core issue that prevents you and me from receiving things from God. It's the core issue. It's at the very root, at the heart, the center, is that we feel disconnected and disqualified for whatever the reasons. Our performance, our lack of performance, our, what we've been told all our life and reminded of periodically or whatever it is. And yet in Christ, that's gone. It's, it, there is no more condemnation. One translation of Romans 8, 1 and 2, the, the nagging voice of the accuser has been silenced. Ooh, I like that. The nagging voice of the accuser has been silenced. Hallelujah. So tonight you have the right to step in whatever kind of messing up you've been a part of you know David's time was dark thankfully God didn't expose it to his generation although we have scripture and we've exposed it to every other generation and I'm sure David is over it now God's not looking to expose you. He's just interested in delivering you. 
He's not looking to embarrass you. He's just interested in healing you. He's not looking for us to even... No, no, I'm not going to go down that road. That'll take me elsewhere. He's looking to get into our life the things that Jesus paid for, for us to receive. Now look, the people come to church sometimes even on a Friday night and they're still carrying the things that Jesus actually paid for them to be free from. And so all of this message tonight is really all about re-exposing you to how thorough and complete your deliverance has already been in Christ. And how the door is open that has not been shut on you, you cannot shut it. And how it is wide open for you to step into. You know, this church in Philadelphia was the only of, of the seven churches that Jesus had nothing to criticize or con- correct. He did say, you have a little strength. I always read that, almost chuckle, thinking, gosh, if he was speaking to me, I I would hope he would say, well, that's okay. It's better than no strength. I really want to hear more than you have a little strength. I would like to hear you have a lot of strength. Maybe it's just me. But he had nothing really to bring to them corrective, but he had a lot to bring to them about stepping into or through this open door. And you and me tonight, there's an open door for us. There's an open door into, ooh, a variety of things. The open door into the, the position, the high order of the Adam who is now the last Adam, no longer the Adam who is future like he was for David. But now the last Adam never needs to be another. Now you have the right to stand in that place where God would deal with you just as he would with him. We don't have any problem believing that all of the goodness of heaven and all of the great things that could come would come to him. But you see, from his point of view, it's not all about him. It is from our point of view as, is, as it should be. And yet from his point of view, it's not all about him. He so loved that he, he gave. But he hasn't stopped loving, so he hasn't stopped giving. So for him, it's still all about the loving and the giving. We need some good loving. <laughs> There's a song in there. I'm not sure it's Christian, but uh, we're not ready for that. Uh, But there's... (laughs) Let's hold back on that one. But he hadn't stopped loving. He hadn't stopped giving. That's what it's all about for him. Glory to God. So he's come to give. What is it that you need to receive? Some need to receive his cleansing fresh and new. It feels like you've got yourself dirty. You're in the right place. 
because his love and forgiveness is abundant and not being held back for any reason whatsoever. So you're in the right place. You go ahead and receive it. But maybe you've come to receive something else. You need healing in your body. You need restoration in your head, your soul. You need something to reconnect with your relationship. You need God to do a miracle in your house. You need your kids to get with it. <laughs> God's into all this. And so I want you to stand with me. I want you to let me pray for you tonight. Oh, my gosh. We got over into it tonight. Thank you, Lord Jesus. But none of all this really counts all that well unless you embrace it yourself. This really wasn't just about passing you information. This is about revelation that brings change. But the other ingredient to revelation bringing change is this, and it's a very simple thing. For revelation, like what we've talked about tonight, man, this is some good stuff. I mean, it, it's been good for me. I trust it has for you, but I've had a party even, even without you. But, uh, but see, the other thing that has to happen when ideas from Scripture come alive to us is we have to make a decision about how that is going to change things for me starting right now. What's going to be different in my life as a result of all these high ideas we've been looking at? That's what really has to connect. And unless that actually connects in one way or another, then we've only had a good study. But it hasn't really been life-changing. You see, we let the Holy Spirit come in and help us come to a conclusion as to what is going to be... So what is going to be different for you now? As a result of what we've been looking at from the Word. I'm not going to answer that for you. But that's the question that has to be asked. What is going to be different for you having spent these two hours here tonight? Because if you don't answer that, then you leave exactly the way you came. And I know we sing the song, I, uh, I'll leave different, I forget the song now, but I won't leave here like I came, thank you. Oh, I'm into the music, I just don't know any of it. But uh, <laughs> I won't leave here like I came, but most of the time, sadly, people do leave exactly as they come. But you don't have to. The anointing of the Holy Spirit has come to bring you. You say, well, I don't even know, Dennis. I know this. I know there was something real for me. Well, then here's the moment right now. Holy Spirit, this is what we're laying hold on. The power to decide. The clarity of what change you are bringing to us. The liberty that you are bringing into us. The freedom to think different. To see ourselves. To see you, O oh God. In a clear perspective. The decision that I can receive from you and I can be changed in the way I've handled crisis or the way I've handled my marriage or the way I've handled my finances, God, that today, because I am in you and I am brought close and I am not on the outside any longer in any way, 
These kind of changes are happening for me, and I will not be the same. God, I'm asking you to help us see with that kind of clarity that David saw with in these eternal things. Because we know King David was never the same after these events. And that's exactly what we crave right this instant. That we not be the same. We do lay hold. I lay hold on change in the name of Jesus. That I would be more pleasing to you. That I would be more like what you have in mind. That your presence and greatness and glory and love would actually show up in the way I handle things also. God, let these changes come in each one of us. That we would be the kind of disciples that show the goodness of God. God, let it be so in Jesus' name. Do you receive that tonight? I think you ought to lift your hands and thank the Lord for it. Would you? Come on, thank God for it. Oh, we do thank you, King Jesus.